says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. <clears throat> and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, I don't know if you guys celebrate Reformation Day here, um, but I think I would, uh, I would fail in my preaching today if I didn't at the very least mention Martin Luther at least one time as we're about to celebrate Reformation Day. So Reformation Day is Tuesday, by the way, October 31st. So now I hope, and I'm kind of assuming this here, that, that most of you know at least something about Martin Luther. Right? that he was a, a 15th century German monk and that he would later begin the Protestant Reformation, right? He, he started the Protestant Reformation. So now, as a Catholic monk, Martin Luther struggled with anxiety and, and self-doubt and, and, and sort of this insecurity about his salvation. This was pre-conversion. He struggled with a, a deep sense of self-doubt about his salvation. Now, Luther had a very self-righteous heart. That's a, the best way to describe it. He, he knew that we worship a perfect and holy God. He knew that God required perfection. He knew that to, to, to merit anything before God, he needed to be perfect. So Luther would literally kill himself in order to achieve his own righteousness. I mean, he, he would literally harm his own health in order to achieve righteousness. This is a quote from from Luther. He says this, when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. Now, it was said of Luther that he was, he was so intense in his pursuit of self-righteousness that, that no other monks in the Catholic monastery where he attended, that, that no other monks were better than him or surpassed him in working towards self-righteousness. In fact, Luther would sometimes get so depressed because he was trying to work himself up to this righteousness that sometimes he would lock himself in his room for days, days without eating or drinking because he was fighting for this self-righteousness. He, he, he had this anxiety that he just had to alleviate by his own works. So now it wasn't until sometime in, in, in 1516 or, or 1517, sometime uh, around then when, when Luther was, was lecturing in the University of Wittenberg on the epistle of Romans, that he, he finally understood the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's when around that time he was converted and he realized that there was no need for him to find his own righteousness, but he trusted in the righteousness of God. Yeah. And so October 31st, which is Tuesday, 
But at that time, 1517, is when Luther allegedly nailed his 95 theses to the, to the castle doors of, of, of Wittenberg, of the Wittenberg Church, all right? Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of the 95 Theses, but the 95 Theses is essentially Luther's protest to the corruptions of the medieval Catholic Church, right? That, that's really what it is. And, and so when we celebrate Reformation Day, this is, is, this is really what we're celebrating. We're, we're, we're celebrating something that began with Luther. And so the story of Luther's anxiety and doubt before his conversion is something that most of us are familiar with. Uh, it's something that I, I would hope most of us have heard at least one time before. Now, most people don't know, however, that even after his conversion, Luther struggled intensely with doubt, anxiety, and depression, even sometimes despair. That's what a lot of people don't know even after he became a Christian. And so Luther would call the days of his spiritual despair. It wasn't as frequent, it wasn't as bad as before he was saved, but it still happened. And he would call those days the dark nights of his soul. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase, the dark nights of his soul. One story in David's time is he, he says this about Luther. This is how Luther's dark nights are described. That, that God had turned his back on him once and for all, abandoning him to suffer the pains of hell, feeling alone in the universe. Luther doubted his own faith. He doubted his own mission, and he doubted the goodness of God. Doubts which, because they verged on blasphemy, drove him deeper and deeper into despair. His prayers met a wall of indifferent silence. He experienced heart palpitations, crying spells, and profuse sweatings. Now this is this is the leader of the Protestant Reformation. This, this, is, this is the spiritual depression that he experienced. Luther even experienced doubt over whether the Protestant Reformation was a true and godly movement. Even the, the Protestant Reformation itself that Luther was like, I don't even know if this is this is true, if this is from God. During, during the early years of, of the Reformation, Luther would often hear in a voice, and I don't think this is literal, that would be kind of crazy if Luther was hearing an actual voice, but this is the voice of his conscience. And he would hear the voice of his conscience over and over asking him, do you alone know everything? In other words, do you alone have the, the capacity or the, the the knowledge or the intellectual capacity to, to, to question the medieval Catholic Church and all the traditions that came before you. And because Luther was questioning himself so much, he would often plummet into the depths of despair. And so as we celebrate the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, I want you guys to remember this, that, that even the founder of the Protestant Reformation struggled with intense spiritual doubt, intense. And so, Brothers and sisters, this brings me to my first point, that, that even the strongest believers, the most mature Christian in here, the, the, the Christian that, that prays the most and they're the most obedient and they've been the Christian the longest, that even that Christian struggles with periods of doubt. Look again in, in verse 18. Verse 18 in, in Luke chapter seven, it says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, 
saying, are you the one who is to come? Now, what were these things that John's disciples reported to him? That's, it seems kind of vague. They reported to him these things. So this was important enough for John's disciples to come to him in prison and say it. Now, let's, let's situate our, our text here in the larger context of Luke chapter 7. And so the first 17 verses of the chapter tells us that these things are referring to the miraculous healings of Jesus Christ. It's referring to his miracles. Look in, in verses 1 through 10 in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus heals the servant of a centurion. So the, the centurion sends his, his servants to Christ, and, and Christ is about to make his way to the centurion's home to, to heal his servant. And then, and then the centurion sends other servants to Jesus and tells them, don't even come. You don't have to come. You have the authority to say it from right where you're at to heal my servant, and he will be healed. And so verse 6 in Luke 7 says this, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to the other, Come. And he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such a faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So this is the first thing that was reported to, Christ, to, to, to John the Baptist by his disciples. And then also Jesus healed, he really he resurrected the son of a widow. In verses 11 through 17, we see how, how Christ, without anyone even requesting him to do so, he resurrects the son of a widow. In verse 13, it says, And when the Lord, the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, this is the widow, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And so when, when John's disciples came to him and reported these things, he is referring, or they are referring to these miracles. Now, what Luke doesn't tell us, Matthew actually tells us in the parallel account, that as John is hearing these things, he's actually in prison. He's in prison. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, we'll read that really quick. It says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now, now John isn't in prison because he's a criminal. He, he's not in prison because he was disobedient. He, he's, he's not in prison because he had done anything that deserved for him to be in prison. John is actually in prison for faithfully proclaiming the word of God. Right? Matthew chapter 14, it says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful 
for you to have her. So now here is John faithfully proclaiming the word of God and he's in prison for it. Now, I don't want you to imagine the, the prison cell that John was in as if this is some American prison with lights and a, a comfortable bed and, and running water and, and food and, and clothes and, and plumbing and, and sanitary conditions. Look, Roman prisons were, were sometimes, most of the time, underground pits or cisterns. They were filthy, cold, dark. They were disease-ridden, no windows, there's no electricity. So when it's dark, it's dark. There, there are no showers, no toilets, no running water, no regularly provided meals. Oftentimes people would starve to death or they would freeze to death. So these were the conditions that John was living in when his disciples reported to him the miracles of Christ. Now, not only was John preaching against Herod's sin, but he was proclaiming that the Messiah would come to save his people and judge the world with a fiery judgment, to take vengeance on his enemies, right? This is what, this is what John is preaching. Go back a couple of chapters to Luke chapter three and verse two. I, I, I wanna paint this picture. Why I'm going through this is that I wanna paint this picture to, to show you the conditions that John was in and why he was there. So Luke chapter three and verse two says this, that during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In verse seven of the same chapter, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John preaching of this judgment that will come to unbelievers. Verse 15 of the same chapter. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. You guys know what a winnowing fork is? You, you would take the fork, you would throw the grain up, and then the wind would separate the chaff from the actual grain that you wanted. So, so the winnowing fork of the Lord is what he uses metaphorically to separate the, his people from those that are unbelievers. Now, he has his winnowing fork in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so my, my point is, brothers and sisters, is that, is that John was preaching, expecting the establishment of the kingdom of God. That's what he was expecting. John, John was preaching, expecting Christ to rain down judgment upon his enemies. John was, was, was preaching, expecting Christ to save his people from Roman oppressors, to save his people from, from men like Herod or Caesar, 
that was persecuting the people. John didn't preach expecting a Messiah to come and heal a few people here or heal a few people there. John certainly didn't expect to be slaughtered by any of his enemies now that Christ was on the scene. He didn't expect a, a savior to suffer and to ultimately die for the ungodly. That was the last thing that John was expecting. And so John in prison expecting Christ who is now here. He knows Christ is here. He is now expecting Christ to save him from his enemies. But here he is faithfully proclaiming the word of God, doing his mission, doing exactly what he was called to do. And what's his reward? Prison. Prison. Now that's hard. That's hard. And he, he hears about Christ healing people, resurrecting people. Well, Christ, why don't you come and save me? What's going on? And so John then sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? That's what it says in verse 19. Are you the one? Or should I look for another? Now, there are at least three ways to understand John's question. There, there, there are three possible ways. And, and some people disagree over this. Now, maybe John actually identity, I mean, actually doubted the identity of the Messiah. Uh, maybe because of his suffering and his, his turmoil, maybe because of what he was experiencing and, and, and languishing in prison, maybe he actually doubted the identity of the Messiah. Now that's, that's possible, but I don't, I don't think that that's very probable because John was the prophesied forerunner of Jesus Christ. He knew exactly who the Messiah was. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, this is what John says. The next day he saw Jesus, he meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John knew exactly who the Messiah was. He had no doubts about that. So I don't think the identity of the Messiah is what John is actually doubting. Amen. Now, now maybe some people suggest, like, like even Calvin, John Gill, one of the most prominent Baptists, that, that they suggest that, that maybe John didn't doubt the identity of the Messiah. Maybe this isn't his doubt at all. Maybe, maybe he's doing this just for his disciples. Maybe his disciples are doubting. So he's sending his disciples to Christ to, to, to get some sort of confirmation for their faith. Now, again... That's possible. It's possible. Um, but I don't think it's it's likely. I don't think it really fits this text. Because Luke chapter 7, verse 22, Christ directs his answer directly to John. Not to his disciples, not to anyone else, but Christ directs his answer to John. It was John that had these doubts, and it was John that received the answer, not the disciples. So, so what I think is, is happening here, brothers and sisters, is that John is not so much doubting the identity of the Messiah, but the methods of the Messiah. He, he, he's doubting the tactics of Jesus in establishing his kingdom. See, John knows Jesus is the Messiah. He knows Jesus is Lord. He knows Jesus will save his people. But John is doubting when it comes to him, will Jesus will actually deliver me? Will Jesus actually save me from the predicament that I am in? <clears throat> See, what John is experiencing here is something that I think we all experience. 
We all go through this at some point in our lives. And that is the, the, the doubt of unmet expectations. And that's a serious doubt. The doubt of unmet expectation in your lives. See, you might not be faithful like John. You, you, you can't preach like John. You, you haven't suffered like John. You haven't lived in the desert. You, you don't eat locusts and wild honey, I hope. You, you, don't, you don't dress in camel's hair. But you believe the very same Christ that John believed in. You believe in the very same Christ. And just like John, you don't so much have an, an absence of faith. It's not like you have no faith, but you have a doubting faith. And you seek Christ for confirmation. You, you have a faith that, that's somewhat weak. And you're seeking him to strengthen you. And so, just like John the Baptist, the very forerunner of Christ, just like he doubted, there is nothing abnormal. There's nothing strange about experiencing doubt in your lives, especially over unmet expectations. Christians, strong Christians, often experience doubt over God's care for them. Often. Charles Spurgeon says this, that some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others so you can preach the gospel to others and of establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible have nevertheless been the subject of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached now I know many of you have experienced that you can preach the gospel to someone else with eloquence but when you go through something when you have doubt in your lives, it becomes hard to believe the very same things that you preach. That's hard. And so you might know exactly who Christ is. You know who Christ is. Most, most church-going Christians don't suddenly begin to doubt the identity of the Messiah. You know exactly who Christ is. When you read his word, you know and trust that he is Lord. But the thing that you doubt is his redemptive plan in your lives. You doubt his care for you. And so when you, when you are faced with, with adversity and trials and suffering, you begin to doubt. When, when you're, you, you begin to wonder why your life is riddled with so many scars of pain, so many hardnesses and so many weaknesses and failures. Why are you so disappointed with your life? You have these unmet expectations and you become disappointed. You wish you had something better. You become disappointed with church. Disappointed with your marriages, disappointed with your family, disappointed with your children, disappointed with friends. It feels like, like you're faithful. You're faithful. You're doing what you're supposed to do. But like John, no matter how faithful you are, it feels like your only reward is more and more affliction, more and more pain, more and more suffering. And so you're not, you're not perfect. You're not morally perfect. You know, Christians always have to qualify everything with that. I'm not perfect. And so, yeah, we, we, we all know that. You're not perfect, but, but you seek the Lord's face, right? You study. You, you, you read the word. You pray. You serve. Every Sunday you're here. Every, every Wednesday night you're here. You're, you're studying the Bible. You're, you're helping brothers. You're evangelizing. You're doing what you think you're supposed to do. You're, you're, you're not living in any outright and rebellious sin. You have sin in your lives. But you're fighting it, right? You're fighting it. You, you check on your brothers. But for some reason, for some reason, life still disappoints you. Life still disappoints you. The Christian walk is still disappointing for various reasons. Now, you experience all this disappointment, 
all this pain, all this hardship, while you, you see people in your life living wickedly with no regard for God at all, they could care less about God. And yet, for some reason, they are happy while, while you're suffering and trying to be faithful. And you, you see the wicked, they're frolicking about without a care in the world. And so you think to yourself, God, are you the one? Are you the one? Do I serve you for no reason? What am I even serving? Do you, do you even care about me? Do, do you see what I'm suffering? Do you see what I'm going through? Do, do you care about my pain? Do you, do you care about everything that I'm being afflicted with? Will you, will you, will you judge my enemies? This is, these, these are the things that you start to think to yourself. Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 14. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. This, this is what it says would happen when he comes. That, that the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can, can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? And so you're wondering, God, where, where, where are the burnings in my life for the wicked people that have arisen against me? Where, where, where is your judgment? Where, where is the righteousness? Where is my deliverance that is promised in scripture? And so you're, you're beginning to doubt. God, do you actually hear me? Do you care for me? And that's hard. That's hard. Your brothers and sisters, I'll tell you this. Let's, let's take a step back and, and, and let's think biblically about this. That if the unmet expectations and, and the doubt that flows from the unmet expectations, if they are not dealt with in your life biblically, that, that if, if you don't take them to scripture and examine them in light of the word, that they will fester and rot in your soul. And if you continue to, to give into it, it will grow into prolonged despair and bitterness and really eventually into full-fledged unbelief. Unbelief. See, that doubt, if not dealt with, as the Bible actually says that we should deal with it, it will end up in apostasy. Garrett Higby, he was a biblical counselor that I like, he says this, that the this, this is what he says about the person giving in to this despair, who, who gives himself in to these these unmet expectations and, and doubt and pain. He says that the person characterized by a despairing heart has a propensity to make an idol of easing pain, feeling good and creating comforts. This person may find themselves making conscious and or unconscious statements like, I deserve or I'm totally helpless. The person who chooses to not deal with a despairing heart may be characterized by a victim mentality. How many people we know with a victim mentality? An inordinate need for security, self-pity, strained relationships, and a propensity to self-medicate or escape through the fantasy of self-destructive behavior. And, and, and brothers and sisters, as I'm, as I'm speaking this to you, I'm not, I'm not speaking above you. I'm not speaking because I don't struggle with this. I'm speaking exactly because I do struggle with this. I, I, I've known the depths of despair. I've known what it feels like to feel so helpless, to feel so powerless, that you're just thinking to yourself, why does it even matter? Why does it matter what I do? Why does it matter what I believe? 
Why not just give up and just give in? Who cares? I felt the depths of despair many times, many times. But now look at Christ in Luke 7, that, that Christ in his gentleness did not leave John in his doubts. And Christ does not leave us in our doubts. See, when, when John sent these disciples to Christ, right? Christ could have brushed him off. Jesus could have said, who are you to ask me anything about who I am? Jesus could have brushed him off. Jesus could have said, don't ask me anything. I do what I do and what I want to do. And you have no right to ask me anything. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He is compassionate and gentle with his people, even when they are doubting him. And so Jesus recommends that when we are struggling with the doubt of unmet expectations or whatever else you're doubting, whatever other reasons, he recommends for us to focus on two things to battle the doubt in our souls. The first is to ground all your hope in the word of God. And the second is to humbly trust the plan of your Savior. Amen. Now let's, let's start with the first, that, that we are to hope in the word of God of God. Let's read verse 21 again in Luke chapter 7. Verse 21 says this, that in that hour he healed many of the people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Now, now we need to, to always slow down and interrogate the text. If you read it too fast, you miss some of the nuances there. Because there's something strange that's going on if you don't really stop to, to, to actually pick up on what's happening. Now, now, John sends his disciples to Jesus because John heard that Jesus was doing miracles. Now, what's strange here is, is Jesus sends his disciples back to tell John, hey, I'm doing miracles. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Y'all get what I'm saying? John knows Christ is doing miracles, and Christ reminds him, I'm doing miracles. Well, that seems very strange. How is that comforting if John already knew that? Because that's actually not what Jesus is doing. That's not what he's doing. That's not merely what he's doing. See, the, the, the truth is, Jesus isn't merely pointing back to his miracles. But he's actually pointing back to the very word of God by selectively alluding to Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. That's what he's doing. That's why, that's why Jesus is speaking like he's speaking, because he's trying to remind John of the Old Testament. So Jesus says, for example, the blind regained their sight and the deaf hear. Isaiah 35 verse 5, Messianic prophecy. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Jesus says again in Luke 7 that the lame, they're going to walk. Messianic prophecy, Isaiah 35 verse 6. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the, de in the desert. Jesus says again, the dead are raised up. Again, prophesied to happen, Isaiah chapter 26 Verse 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. 
Last one. Jesus says the poor have good news preached to them. Isaiah 61 and 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Luke actually records for us the fulfillment of this very chapter. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 20, it says this, And he, this is Jesus, rolled up the scroll after reading this very same prophecy in Isaiah 61, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what, what Jesus is saying, brothers and sisters, is that we must learn to regulate our expectation of Christ's work in our lives by the word of God. So John, as the greatest Old Testament prophet, you, he's the greatest Old Testament prophet. He, he should have remembered that Christ actually wasn't doing anything unusual by ministering and, and healing to broken people throughout Judea. He wasn't doing anything that was unexpected, nothing strange. So, so Christ is saying to John, that John, the, the same text that point to my vengeance, the same text that point to my fiery judgment, also point to me redeeming my people, also point to my mercy and my kindness to broken people. See, see, Jesus is doing exactly what the word says he would do. So, so doubt for John began to creep in when he allowed his feelings to interpret his circumstances rather than the word. Amen. That's when that doubt started to creep in. And doubt for you will creep in when you allow your personal desires, your personal expectations and preferences to begin to cloud out the truth of God's revelation. That's when you begin to doubt. See, a, a, a Christian who allows the word to guide his thinking, who allows the Bible to guide his thinking, doesn't expect Christ to bring some sort of immediate ease and tranquility and kumbaya. He doesn't expect that. In fact, the, the, the Christian who is, who is focusing on the word of God actually expects suffering. He's not surprised by it. Amen. Acts chapter 14, verse 22 says, this is Paul and Barnabas speaking to the disciples. Acts 14, 22 says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must, not we may, not we, I mean, probably, but we must enter the kingdom of God. And so before the fiery judgment of your enemies, before the full culmination of, of, of God's glorious kingdom, the word of God tells you to expect suffering. It tells you to expect pain, adversity. But your feelings will often deceive you. They will lie to you. You come to some of the craziest conclusions when you let yourself just go off into thought. When you, when you allow your feelings to control your thinking, you, you, you come up with some of the craziest things. And so the word of God is the very antidote to the miscalculations given to you by your emotions. It's the antidote. And so I, I know some of you have difficulties in your life. I don't, I don't pass this church. I don't come here very often, but I know you have difficulties because I have difficulties. 
So, so if you're anything like me, you have difficulties in your life. And, and the temptation is to think, these are the emotions, the feelings that start to cloud our mind. The temptation is to think, man, if I'm going through this, I must be doing something wrong. I must be doing something wrong. I, I, I thought the Christian life was supposed to be easy, but this is hard. Fighting sin is hard. Feeling disappointed with my life is hard. I know many of you struggle with that. And then, and then your feelings start to, to go even further. Well, well maybe I'm, I'm going through this because Christ doesn't love me. Maybe he doesn't care about me. Maybe he's punishing me for my sin. And then your, your emotions start to go even deeper. And, and then you begin to begrudge the providence of God. You begin to hate the providence of God in your life. You begin to despise it. You begin to reject it because your feelings are interpreting everything around you and not the word of God. So in those very moments when you start to feel that way, those very moments when you start to doubt and your feelings begin to take over, that you have to let the word of God be your foundation. Martin Lloyd-Jones in, in his book, Spiritual Depression, this, this is an amazing book, by the way. If you, if you ever struggle with depression at all, read this book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, it's called Spiritual Depression. This is what he says, that the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? This is what you have to do with the word. You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Amen. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, instead of letting your feelings take over, you begin to self-pity, and, and, and then you begin to shut down. You must go on to remind yourself of God, who is God, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. And brothers and sisters, how can you do this if not by the word of God? How can you do this if you are not getting into your Bibles? Your emotions will take over and lead you astray. Now, the second thing that we have to do to battle doubt in our lives is that we must cultivate a humble trust in Jesus Christ. We have to cultivate a trust in his providence and the guidance of our lives. Look at verse 30, 23, excuse me, again in Luke chapter 7, verse 23. It says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, when we think of being offended, usually what we mean is uh, we're disrespected, right? There's someone slighted you. Someone says something to you that's rude or or kind of mean and you feel kind of disrespected you're kind of taken aback now that is what offended means but in the biblical sense being offended or offended in this context doesn't merely mean disrespected it doesn't merely mean that as it does in our modern language see to, to be offended in the biblical sense includes the idea of falling away into sin that's what it really means to be offended at Christ the same word, it's, it's translated as offended in this text. In Luke chapter 17, verse 2, that word is translated as sin. 
it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That's that same word. That same word is translated as offended in Luke 7. In, in, in Matthew chapter 24, it's, it's translated as to fall away. To fall away. Now I'm reading from the ESV. Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, it says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And so to be offended isn't merely to feel somewhat slighted or disrespected, but it is to begrudge, to despise God's redemptive plan for his people and his providence in your life. That's what it means to be offended at Christ. See, the, the Jews scorned the idea. They found the idea of a suffering Messiah almost disgusting. That was repulsive to them. And so the, the, the idea of a Messiah, of a Messiah who, who would come as a, a humble servant and die on behalf of filthy sinners, that was, oh my goodness, they couldn't think of anything else more disgusting than that. And so they fell away and died in the sin of unbelief because they were offended at Christ. They were offended at his plan. So when you fail to trust in Jesus or to humble and submit yourself to his providence and your life, when it disappoints you or, or, or when you begin to experience doubt, what you're actually doing is sin. It is rebellion. Now, I, I know in our modern evangelical context, it's, it's uh, discouraged to tell people that they're in sin for doing anything. But this is what the word is saying, that, that when you fail to trust in Christ, no matter how hard your life is, you are in sin. That's what it is. That's not fundamentalism. That's not me being mean. That's what the word says. And so offense at Christ is often displayed in many different things, but here are a couple. One of them is excessive complaining. You ever met someone like that? Always complaining about something. Always. Another one is, is sinful demands for what you think you deserve. Demanding you, you cannot yield to the idea of not having this thing that you think you deserve. Another one is turning to the suggestions of the modern culture to distract yourself from your problems. And that comes in many different ways. Psychological fads, self-help ideology, sinful entertainment. And y'all know what I mean when I talk about sinful entertainment. Every one of us has a temptation for that. And so despair that is not resisted, but, a, but a allowed to grow turns into outright apostasy. Another one is, is, is refusing to yield or to obey the commands of the word. Now, I know many of you, I'll give you an example of, of someone who was obviously offended at Christ. Have you ever uh, met someone that for whatever reason, they are excessively critical of the church? Now, now not a particular church, but of the church in general, excessively critical. There's always something wrong about the church and never anything right, right? Now, it could be for various reasons. Maybe the church hurt them or they had a bad experience or they, they suffered something, but, but, but they are so offended that they would refuse to come to church, refuse. They, they can't fathom going to a church and associated with people who have maybe hurt them in some way, unfortunately. And so that is a modern day 
conversion of someone so offended at Christ that they would refuse to obey the very word of God than to trust in him. As an example. Now, Christ doesn't just focus on the sin of being offended at. He doesn't just stop here. But he actually focuses on the blessedness of trusting in him. The, the divine favor or privilege, if you will, of trusting in Christ through our doubts. You see, true blessedness is trusting in Christ and in his work, even when your life has unfulfilled desires or unmet expectations. True blessedness is found in that. See, the, the, the reason why you must trust in Christ is because you have limited perception. You don't know everything. You don't. You, you, you see one small little molecule of God's plan for your life. You don't know everything that God is doing in you and through you and around you. See, John the Baptist had no idea that through Jesus's humble service and suffering and, and ultimately death and the preaching of a simple gospel and, 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 and the, the miraculous signs that demonstrated the truth of that gospel, John had no idea that those were the very means that would usher in the kingdom that he wanted so bad. His, his perception was limited. He thought that the only way that the kingdom could come that he wanted was by fire, judgment. But he had no idea that the kingdom truly was being ushered in through the preaching of the gospel. No idea. And so if John had his way, what he thought was best, guess what? He never would have actually gotten what he wanted. Never. So who would have thought that the suffering and death of one Jewish man 2,000 years ago would be the very means of God saving all of his people from wrath? Who, who could come up with something like that? See, you have no idea what glory God is working in you and through you. No idea. You, you have no idea why you are experiencing the difficulties and the pain and the adversities in your life. Your perception is extremely limited. And to be quite honest with you, sometimes you never find out, at least not in this life. You never find out. And fortunately, brothers and sisters, how did the story of John the Baptist end? Ultimately, he was beheaded. He was killed. Now, I'm sure he was encouraged by what his disciples reported to him about Christ, but ultimately, he never got free. Never. But now, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 says this, that, that ultimately, this is when Christ comes back, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So brothers and sisters, all your pain, all your discouragement, all your adversity, all your suffering, all your trials, it will all make sense when Jesus returns, and that we are ushered in to that eternal blessed presence and be with him forevermore. That's when it's going to make sense. So now let me wrap up and conclude with this. I'm going to return to, to Martin Luther for a moment. And Luther with all of his anxieties and struggles and, and the dark night of his soul. That Luther's pain, Luther's despair, his, his sufferings, his afflictions, that's exactly what he needed 
and what God used to make him into the leader of the Protestant Reformation that all of us benefit from here today. All of us. And Luther, in his limited perception, I'm sure he didn't want that. I'm sure if you gave him the choice, he would have never went through it. But look at what God did through a weak and doubting man like Luther. Look at what he did. In fact, it was Luther's struggles with doubt that helped him to develop his biblical theology of assurance, of self-doubt, that all of us and our, and our piety, our Protestant piety today, all of us benefit from that. All of us. See, Luther began to realize that doubt wasn't necessarily incompatible with faith. It wasn't. Just as we see with John the Baptist, you can be faithful and still have your doubt. However, as Luther found out, and as I've said to you here today, that you must, you have to battle your doubt constantly with two weapons, the word of God, and then humbly trusting in the promises of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, God, I want to thank you for your